Hi, good afternoon. I'm Dawn Stobart, and this is a very special edition of Pennywise Dreadful, um, live from Kingston University, where we've been hosting our first ever live event. And I'm joined for a question and answer session by Robin Firth. And Robin Firth, in 2000, started working as Stephen King's research assistant and has lived in Midworld ever since. Her Dark Tower concordances were originally written for Stephen King's use, but have since been published in the US and UK and have been translated into numerous European languages. With Peter David, she is the co-author of Marvel's best-selling Dark Tower spin-off comics, and as well as her freelance work for Roland Deschain and Stephen King, she has written comics for IDW's Womanthology, Image Comics Thought Bubble and Marvel's Legion of Monsters and Girls comics. She has also adapted Sherilyn Kenyon's Lords of Avalon into graphic novel form. Good afternoon, Robin. Have you enjoyed the day so far? Yes, very much. Really fascinating. It's great to be in a room full of people who are also obsessed with these, <laughs> these books and horror in general, Stephen King's work in particular here. But yeah, it's been wonderful. Yeah, brilliant. So we'll dive straight in if sure, that's all right. Sounds great. You have been involved in the Dark Tower novel in the, with the Dark Tower and Midworld for a very long time and co-authored the graphic novels, like I've just said, as well as writing the Concordance. So, what genre would you consider the whole series to be? Um, it, yeah. Is it Western, fantasy, science fiction, or a bit of everything? A bit of everything. And I think there is one line where um, Eddie Dean and Roland Deschamps are talking about. Um, books and genres and Roland says does no one eat stew you know it's like mixing all these things and I think that's very much what Stephen King wanted to do when he set out to um, write the Dark Tower series and it's really interesting because um, I think people readers see in the Dark Tower series if they are fans um, they see the genres they really like and then kind of push the others aside because I, I know one fellow who is a huge science fiction fan hates fantasy and I was talking about the fantasy elements in Dark Tower and he was like horrified he said it's not it's science fiction and there even is that question of where does fantasy and science fiction begin I mean they're both they're speculative fiction of different kinds in some ways it's the window dressing that changes you know but but that idea the fantastic uh, the imagination plays such a big part. But back to the question about um, about genres, all of those, and there's the romance, you know, because yep. you think of the Arthurian legends that feed into it, and um, Child Rollins of the Dark Tower came, so poetry yep. with Browning, and actually an influence um, in terms of poetry, um, you know, Ed Dorn's uh, The Gunslinger, the, the poem, the, the long poem, um, I always thought that was an influence and I actually recently did ask Stephen King about that. Just it came up in another, there was another whole issue we were talking about. And he said, oh yes, because when Ed Dorn came, he, uh, that whole movement in poetry was really big at the University of Maine at Orno. Um, and Ed Dorn came to speak. And actually Stephen King went to see him and he actually said he read his copy until it fell to pieces. Which if you look at the summaries, if you look online for the summaries of, um, that long poem, that epic work, uh, it's very similar in some ways to Roland's uh, journey across Midworld. I mean, they're very different, but it's really interesting how the many influences feed in. Mm, absolutely. 
Now, to talk about the film, we'll get the elephant in the room. Yes. It was very polarised. I've spoken to lots of tower junkies and they either love it or hate it, I have noticed. So the film isn't a direct adaptation of the books at all, is it? No. So how does it fit into the canon? Well, even the question of canon is really problematic because um, a lot of Dark Tower readers have talked to me, you know, where does, you know, where did the comics even fit into that canon? And... For me, use the metaphor of the tower, the different levels of the tower. Use Stephen King's books. They are the books. They are his. Um, and then you have the very spin-off things. Think of them different levels. Like the, the comics, it's kind of like a weird reinterpretation and alternate world version. I think it's the same with the film. And I think um, with the film, if, if you trace its history, the trying to, to create it, um, going back to J.J. Abrams, and then he said, you know, I, I love this series. I'm not going to go there because I don't think I can do it justice. And then the next kind of iteration of that journey um, with Ron, Ron Howard and and Universal, and then it went to Warner Brothers, um, and then it finally with you know Nick Arcel, um, you know he had the script that had been written previously, and 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 he reworked it, and you know so it's kind of a joint effort script. Um, but I think it was that question of how do you take this series that stretches over now eight novels and a novella, how do you introduce that to people? And it was that dilemma of um, introducing Roland and his journey in one film. And they, there were all sorts of reasons why they didn't want to just start with The Gunslinger. I mean, I think that is a whole, whole other, uh, other journey. And they said, okay, we want to kind of get the world all in one. And so this was the script they came to. And... I really, really liked it. And I think we were talking about it it will be a grower for some people. Some people just will never like it. No matter what. They're just like, nope. But um, I think that among other people, um, maybe it will will grow. And I think that issue, you know what you brought up with um, Odetta and and Detta and the issues of changing Roland's race and how will that affect the, the story later on. I thought that was going to be a challenge, but really interesting to see what happened with that, because I think Idris Elba carried the part really well. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens yeah. with the TV show, if they want to stick with Idris Elba or if they want to change. I don't know how that will go. So personally, I really, really liked the film. A lot of people didn't, and there's been a lot of actual nastiness you know, <laughs> on the yeah. internet. Have, have, have people seen that with the... And some of it you think it's justified, and some of it you just want to say, oh boy, don't go there. Please <laughs> just do not go there. It's that reading the bottom half of the internet. Yeah, 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 it? yeah. You just, it's the ugliness that comes up because you don't have to look someone in the eye and say, you know, some of, the, some of it's justified. That's someone's opinion. That's yeah. fair enough. When it gets into kind of race, racism, that's just, yeah. don't no, go No, I agree. There. I agree absolutely. Um, so to go back to the, yeah. the, the canon Oh yeah, I kind of got it. Yes. <laughs> when, does it? Does it? Does it? Is it? Is it a sequel? I have. I've read lots of things that say it's set after the novel. Yes, and that whole issue of Roland having his he's horn. Got the horn exactly. Um, so that is that the the, the next turn of the journey, yeah. um, next iteration of his journey. Um, I would say, kind of like the comics, I would say it it almost exists in the film version 
of the Dark Tower universe. So once again, you know, um, it's that whole thing of the difference between the film version of something yeah. and the uh, books. Because there are a lot of people who will watch the film, don't know the books. Yeah. And so on that level, I think it, it was a way in for many people. Yeah, I, I've, I've yeah. come across that, that people yeah. haven't read the books, but thought the film was absolutely brilliant, and it's led them on yeah, to, to read, read the, book. the books. Which even happened with the comics. People who, you know, they read comics, they don't read novels. They started to read the Dark Tower novels and said, wait a minute, I want to know more about this world, so they go back and read the books. So it's just kind of a nice weaving of, of those things. So where does the Dark Tower fit in the rest of Stephen King's work? Because ah, there's yes. so much intertextuality, as we saw earlier, that he weaves that so well over years and years and years. How, so how does the tower fit? It's actually something that Stephen King himself has talked about. I believe it was in the, uh, was it the afterword of Wizard and Glass or the forward? I can't remember. But he does talk about, um, you know, that Stephen King universe and Dark Tower being, he says it's like the largest planet in his universe. It's the Saturn of his, his own dreamscape. And in some ways, it's also like the sun. <laughs> if you think about it, that central, he never calls it that, but um, because Roland Deschain was really the first of his characters to be born. You have the Dark Man, you have an early poem that he wrote while he was at the University of Maine, and he calls it the Dark Man. And you also have Roland that he started to write about when he was in, um, still an undergraduate, in a cabin by the, by the water. You know, his other um, roommates had dropped out of school or been kicked out and Roland starts to be born and it's that love of um, the Western and also that childhood love which he does write about in many places of um, you know of, of Westerns of, he was a science fiction fanatic he read science sci-fi all the time when he was a kid um, and also love of comics so all these things come together um, it's quite fascinating I think it is yeah. I love picking up the bits yeah. and, and reading that book and finding that that just even yeah. just a sentence yes. that links back to things I think it's brilliant yeah and and the literary influence as well because there was the love of T.S. Eliot you yeah. see that in there um and you know he does talk about uh Child Roland the poem by, by Browning mm -hmm. so and Yeats as well comes in turning turning in the widening gyre that comes up in so many of his books that idea of reality is beginning to break apart, starting to fall apart, and the ideas of the modern world, and where where is it falling down? The distrust of machinery, the world breaking down. Yeah, yeah. So what about the ending to the film? Because that's one of the most contentious things that I've come across. It doesn't end the way it's supposed to. Well, that's that's what the internet has yeah. <laughs> led me to believe. I mean, I'm quite happy with it. Yeah, I, it, the funny thing is. Um, the first time I saw it, um, I had read the scripts and I'd read several versions of the scripts. And then when I got to the movie theater and I saw the end, I was like, wait a minute, where did that come from? It wasn't in the last version of the script I'd read, so I was completely floored. And uh, I thought it was really interesting. And I actually did get the, the chance to talk to Nick Arcel, and we were talking about the film after the, the um, you know, it had, it had been screened and all that. and. He actually brought it up because I guess a lot of people had really had a go at him about it. I don't know. But he said, well, actually, um, the ending of this story was, uh, you know, he said he thought about it a lot. And if Roland is going through, if he's learned, if he's gone through this journey many times and he's learned, how can he let J uh, Jake die again? 
that's making the same mistake, mm. isn't it? So let's have him. So that's the biggest criticism yeah. I've heard that yeah. Jake gets to the end. Yeah. Which. So yeah, exactly. And how are you? I mean, if if it was going to be that the series, the TV series, comes off of the film, then you have another problem with the continuity as it exists in the books. Because how can Jake be brought back? Yeah, and I hope I'm not spoiling anything for everybody. I'm really sorry. We have to tell that you have to start with a spoiler, <laughs> spoiler alert, you know. But how can Jake come back if Jake doesn't die? So you don't have the two characters going mad because they're supposed to be in one world they're dead and in another world they're alive. You have it happening in the minds of the audience. Wait, <laughs> you know that yeah. kind of the, you have the loop of of time. You have to switch from one reality to another. Now, I went to see it on opening night because I am that much of a dark oh, that's great. geek. And one of the things I really enjoyed about watching film was the Easter eggs. You know, picking up the bad yes. striker sign, the Pennywise. Yes. I'm so glad you like the striker pipe because that was one of my ideas. They said, <laughs> okay, we need to, you know, every, you know throw in some well, That was going to be my question. Were you involved yeah. in yeah, that? Yeah, I was actually. I was because one of the things as a researcher said, okay, we need to bring in, um, you know, other books. And anybody see the St. Bernard on the street? I was really pleased with it. <laughs> there he is. I said, let's do that. But anyway, so the, the filmmakers had lots of ideas and they put them in. So I also kind of threw in ideas of... So was that a fun, a fun... It was. Picking it, out the different yeah, films just, and... Just little things. Anything. It had to be quick. It had to be visual. And it, it links everything yeah. back to the wider King world again, doesn't yeah. it? The, the way the books do, which I think was brilliant. And yeah, I was, and how I was do you sat do there that? giggling away to myself and people. People were stony in silence because it's not oh, the right really? film. Oh, isn't and, I know. And I'm giggling and loving it. And I'm so pleased you like it. And, and it's fair enough, you know, whatever someone's response, yeah. I respect that because each reader is different in what you're, you're looking for, you know, in the films. But a lot of those people who I've talked to since, it's, it's a slow burner. They've come back and watched it again and thought, well, it's not that bad. They've just got over that initial yes. disappointment that it's not the film that they wanted yes. it to be which I think is quite interesting. And one of the things with that is, I remember Stephen King probably a long, long time ago, and you'll be able to tell me better, modelled Roland on Clint Eastwood. And so lots of people, myself included, yeah. had that in my head as he's going across the desert, that's Clint Eastwood. It's so, so then Idris Elba isn't Clint Eastwood. No, but actually what's really interesting, because this is something I've been spending you know, time looking at, thinking about, is... The look of Roland, if you actually go back through the books mm -hmm. and you search, and I have done this, for what Roland actually looks like, he doesn't look like that kind of... Clint Eastwood, we must, it's a very good-looking <laughs> gunslinger, right? Well, Roland, in, in The Gunslinger, he's haggard, his face is pitted, he's been going across... Yeah, long, tall, long, tall ugly. ugly. That's what Eddie Dean calls him. So... Physically, there's not a lot of physical detail because actually one of the things Stephen King talks about when he talks about his own writing technique is he likes to leave a lot to the imagination of his reader because he wants you invested in his characters. And so he gives you the a few choice details and then you build up the character in your mind. Mm. So, you know, when Roland appears on the screen or in an illustration, that's fair enough, you know. But um, it's just really interesting that I, I too must say that I had that kind of Clint Eastwood thing in my head but too. Yeah, but like, like you said, when I've gone through it, and I've got e-copies as well as book, you know, paper copies, and searching through, there he says he's dark-skinned at one point, which doesn't yeah. detract from Idris Elba at all. So, yeah. you know, some It's of, those eyes that are always... Yeah, the, those, it's, it's the, the eye. Bum, yeah. You know, the 
bombardier's eyes, those cold blue eyes. And that actually reminded me of something that I wanted to say about that, and it's completely gone, but it will come back. <laughs> you need to get off on another track. Now, more widely, you know, I've read things that have influenced my reading of The Dark Tower, and I understand that Stephen King himself is a voracious yes. reader. How has that influenced his writing, The Tower, do you think? I think it's influenced all his writing because um, Bert Hatland, who, that was how I met Stephen King, because I was at the University of Maine at Orono, and Bert was one of my, um, you know, he was my supervisor. He had been Stephen, one of Stephen King's professors. And one of the things Bert said is he knew that Stephen King was going to really go far as a writer because he said every time he saw me, he was reading a book. And actually, it's even known in the Bangor area, um, Stephen King now, you know, he spends a lot of time elsewhere, but um, he'd be walking down the street reading a book. And people were like, he's going to be hit by a car. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but you know what I mean? Because he, he reads all the time and he reads everything. And um, even in On Writing, um, he talks about the importance of reading. You cannot be a writer if you're not also a reader. And especially in his early essays about, um, about writing, he talks about uh, many different authors, many different genres, and he ranges over huge expanses you know, from the influence of film, the influence of, um, you know, someone like H.P. Lovecraft or, or Edgar Allan Poe, um, and then, you know, literary figures. So he really is a reader, and I, I, I think that's central to everything he does. Yeah, yeah, and the child roll into the dark. Yes, him, exactly. The poems, they're all, yeah. you can see their influence. But yeah. Is there any other? Can you pick out any other influences that we can see in the Dark Tower? I think definitely the history of romance. I think um, because when you, one of the things I actually really love personally is when you go back in um, Wizard and Glass to Roland's youth. And you do have that melding of um, the Western and also, um, you know, the, the, that romance genre of, um, you know, the, the castle and the history of the <coughs> great ancestor. Um, which really is a version, you know, of, of King Arthur, but it's Arthur Eld. I think you also have dystopian fiction, and you have um, apocalyptic fiction. All of that really is in the Dark Tower series because you have a world where the apocalypse has already happened, and it's only as the series goes on you start to wonder, you know, Roland's history is our future. Mm. And, and yeah, that many took me quite a while yeah. to get to that it, point. It's a slow builder, yeah. isn't it? To, to that, that realisation. I think it was, is it the one they visit the world of the sun? Is it in Wizard and Glass? Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh! At the end of it, where they see Lud. Yeah. Actually, it actually goes back to the Wastelands, doesn't it? When um, Roland and his quartet, they're going to cross over a bridge into Lud. Um, and the skyline makes them think yeah. of New York City. And then there's a train station in Ludd that makes them think of Grand, yes. you know, Grand Central Station. So you've, you've a kind of a layering of many different places. Yeah, which also, something we were talking about, your journey, yeah. the whole thing about um, in the stand you can literally map um, you yeah. know, Stu Redman's journey across the states. Well, you can't really do that in Dark Tower because it's almost like the American landscape's been literally broken up, shaken up, and thrown down. Cause Fans always talk about that. Wait a minute, where, where does he go from here to here to here? Yeah, and so. that's what you, that's how you started with. Is that how you started? That was one of the first things I did because when when Stephen King was going back to the Dark Tower, it was after his accident. After he 
you know, finished Wizard in Glass um, and was going back and he was going to start working on Wolves of the Kala and I was doing the um, concordance for him so that he could keep track of all of his characters and the places and the characters' histories. He wanted page um, lists. And once I actually started to work with him and with the new manuscript, he's like, okay, um, I want to start to map this. Yes, directions are drifted midworld, but I don't want them to be in a drift this much, you know, because fans have talked about this as well, that um, at one point Roland is journeying um, southeast and it switches to southwest for a little bit and goes southeast. So one of those, those jobs was actually drawing the maps that uh, much tidy versions are in the concordance, but, but drawing those maps um, you know, for Stephen King. But that was a job and a half. Yeah, yeah. That, it, that seems just so huge in my yeah. mind that I wouldn't know where to start. Well, I think when you read and reread and reread, you, you realize you start to have that landscape in your head. And it's really funny because I think that in our world, I'm, um, I always say to my husband, I'm directionally impaired. <laughs> I, I will, I was like, oh yeah, I'll follow you because I'll get lost easily. But in midworld, I'll find my way better. Yeah. It's really weird. Yeah, that's not, I'm geographically incompetent. Yeah, that's yeah. the way I say it. <laughs> so it's just, it's just one of those strange things, you know. And I think that um, everyone out there who writes, you know that when you're writing, as you're writing something, the landscape or the, the story, the place grows and it, and it changes. And sometimes you're not even aware um, how your landscape has expanded until you go back. And, and you think about that with the creation of a world that he, you know, written over 30 years, oh. even before he started Wolves of the Kala, that landscape grows and changes. So to then map it is, is yeah. quite a job. I think one of the things, one of the things I admire apart from his literary genius and all, you know, all yeah. those amazing things that we've gathered to talking about today, the fact that he has the intertextual references spread out through an entire yeah. career that spans 40 odd years. Yeah. And hasn't lost track of them all. No, it is amazing. That, it is that, really amazing. astounding that he it can is. remember that in that book there was that little mention yeah. and you can then pull that out and make it bigger in that book. And yeah, I think that's, that's pure genius. It is amazing. And I think also one of the things that's really fascinating is, you know, that map. I think he, it's actually on the King website of Stephen King's Maine, which is different from the actual Maine, but also it... it there's a constant interrelation and a play between the two. Mm. Um, and, you know, he has talked about how Derry, Maine, it has a lot of Old Town, Maine, in it and a lot of um, uh, Orono, Maine, and Bangor, Maine. So these places, they are real places. And it was really strange in it uh, when they have these, the Paul Bunyan statue. Yeah. And Mark and I, that was one part I was like, it's not the real Paul Bunyan statue because they had to, they redid it. They filmed it in Canada. I thought it was a great film, but it's just interesting that that they actually chose not to film it mm. in Maine, where often they are filmed in Maine. You know, that's one of the things to bring money to the economy. That that real awareness Stephen King has about um, ordinary people, and he comes from a state, and I lived in Maine for a long, long time. Um, it's an it's a state that has real economic problems and he's very aware of that. He's very aware of what it's like to work in the laundry because he, he worked in industrial laundry before he actually started to teach. That was long before, you know, Carrie was taken. So the lives of ordinary people, those economic problems of, of working class people, very much part of his awareness. And I think that's something that's really underrated for him 
his philanthropy and oh, his so. ability to help support the state and not have any particular recognition for that. He's just doing it yeah. for doing its sake, not for Donald Trump's look what I've no, done. No, exactly. And often he, <laughs> he and Tabitha King Day don't want their names necessarily on the, the buildings they helped to build, the wings of hospitals they've they funded, um, Old Town Library, Bangor Library. They were pretty much built and rebuilt by the kings. Um, you know, all sorts of places, uh, um, schools, um, they've, they've just given tremendous amounts of money. They've built parks, um, baseball fields, you know, they've done a tremendous amount. Yeah, Very philanthropic people. They haven't forgotten, you know, what it's like when someone doesn't have the money. They do scholarships. There's also, um, for writers and artists who uh, go through hard times, they go through tremendous health problems, there actually is a fund that they that you can apply to, um, you know, that the Kings actually fund. It's the Wave Dance Foundation. And I actually know people personally who've, you know, they've had car accidents, they've had cancer. Um, in, in a couple of cases, the writer has died and their families have had to uh, apply for funding just to get through. Because in the United States, you don't have the mm. National Health Service. So you lose your health, you have this setback, you're no longer working. If you don't have insurance, and many freelance people don't, what do you do? You are really in trouble. I think I'm a big supporter of the National Health Service. Me too. NHS, so great to, thing. To get back to the film, just sorry. For, no, it's fine, because I, I like this sort of conversation. I love the way that Matthew, I said Matthew Mahoney should be, should be the man in black for years. I think he, I think that was a piece of genius casting. I thought he did a great job. And Andy Drussell, but I thought he represented Roland yeah. really, really well. Um, so what did you think about the way that the characters were translated to the film from the books? Having, knowing that those characters so well in print, how did you feel about them on the screen? I thought, I really, like I said, I really enjoyed it. I thought Jake was brilliant, Tom Taylor. Yep. I thought that he, he looked the part, he acted the part, he just was Jake when he stepped onto the screen, I saw him, and I thought he was great. Um, I thought Matthew Mahoney was great, I really liked him as the man in black. Yeah. I thought he he got across that kind of, he's always tittering in the books, isn't he? Mm. He's fit sinister, he's got this strange sense of humor, he's quite a twisted character, and I thought he carried that across. Yes. Idris Elba, I thought, you know, yeah, I thought he did an excellent job. It was interesting because my husband purposefully does not go to the Dark Tower series that much. He said, there's one of us in the house that's plenty. <laughs> so for him, we were discussing character arcs. And he, and he described, like, he thought it was really strange the way, um, you know, the Roland character, Idris Elba, the way he portrayed, portrayed Roland um, beginning as a um, quite distance and then he gradually gets this relationship with Jake and he there is a kind of a love and a bond there and I yeah. said well that's exactly the arc yeah from the books so he picked it up from the film so I thought that really spoke highly of how how they did translate it to screen and I thought that Nick Arcel did a really good job directing it and pulling those things across I agree I agree um no I think yeah has there been a resurgence in the popularity of The Dark Tower in light of the film? When I started reading it, way back in the dim mists of time when I was a little teen, um, it was almost cultish it, to yes, read it, The Dark I Tower. It, it I didn't know as well. anybody else yeah. in my entire life that had read The Dark yeah. Tower. Um, so if 
you think there has been a resurgence. Why do you think? Do you think it's just the popularity of the film or do you think there's a, a resurgence in fantasy or a change in the way people see the tower? Definitely resurgence in fantasy. Because if you if you just look back a couple of years, people say, oh, fantasy's dead. Well, then, you, you know, you have Harry Potter, you have Game of Thrones, you know, so it's there's that, definitely. Um, I think there was a, a... It started to get more discussion when when there was even the discussion of Dark Tower coming to film. You know, when J.J. Abrams talked about it, all of a sudden people started to think about this other, um, you know, this other King book, this whole world of his. Um, I think the comics also, uh, just there was, a, there's been a momentum building for a long time with Dark Tower mm. that culminated in the film. And a lot more people are aware of it because a lot of people weren't actually even aware of it. Yeah. Because it seems so out of character. Um, Stephen King was the master of horror. So um, there were many people uh, that didn't even realize that he wrote yeah. other kinds of books. Yeah, yeah, and you see you that know? across his fiction, don't you? If you say yeah. to somebody, Stephen King wrote The Shawshank Redemption, exactly. you get, no he didn't, don't be silly. Yeah. That's, he writes Stand horror. By Me is based yeah. on the body. And, and, and people genuinely yeah. are really shocked when yes. you say that, that he's not just an out-and-out gory horror yeah. writer, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, exactly. So it is actually, I wonder if if even um, when, when we talk about brands and, you know, a writer does this kind of work and then you say well not just that kind of work look at this kind of fiction and that kind of fiction sometimes it takes a while for for that to become more of a comfortable thing for people to see a writer as having many faces yeah so to finish up this section what about the way forward for the dark tower how do you do as the film tv franchise what direction would you like to see it oh my goodness that's it it's really interesting it's always hard to say what you want to see because i even found this when stephen king um was writing uh you know the the, um, wolves of the kala song of Susanna, and the dark tower because he sent me questions and i do research for him all sorts of wild and wonderful things and i'd give him the research and i'd be certain it was going to go in this particular direction and then i'd be floored because i'd get the pages like wow where did that come from but it was always really fascinating and interesting and it was the journey the characters were taking so i found that really interesting so i don't want to guess even because <laughs> i want to be just surprised and enjoy it yeah so it'd be interesting and, and it and it really does sound like the tv hopefully is gonna and i understand it might be wizards and glass I think that's still being discussed because that was the original. Yeah. So, so we'll see. There's some things I can't say. Some things I can't <laughs> say. Damn, I I'll get that say. in there. I'll get in trouble. So, yeah, but it looks like that TV series is going. So it, it is really the Stephen King year when you think yeah. about it. How many things are coming out? It's phenomenal. Yeah. Now, at this point, I'd like to invite Alan Gregory and Simon Brown to come down and join me at the top table. So I'd like to start this by asking if there's any questions that the audience would like to ask Robin or the other two wonderful gentlemen on the panel. No? I've got a question for Robin. Knowing how the various aliases function for the man in black or Randall Flagg or... Are you Randall Flagg? (laughs) It's so funny that you should say that because um, here I am dressed in black. Because <laughs> RF, one of the reasons I always wondered, did I actually get hired finally? Because my, you know, most of my correspondence with Stephen King was over email when when we did start to correspond, and here I am with those initials RF, Robin Firth, Randall Flagg. Um, but one of the things actually that did happen to me, uh, I found out that there was. Um, 
discussion among some King fans that didn't they didn't believe I actually existed. They thought I was made up too. <laughs> you know, I thought, isn't that weird? You know, that someone would think that I didn't exist. I'm a construct. Stephen King wrote me, or somebody else wrote me, and just you know because he used my initials. Um, no, I am not. <laughs> I am not Randall Flagg. Although if I am and I don't know about it, we're nicer in our female, car, you know, incarnations. <laughs> well, we're, we're allied with you know the white rather than the outer dark. If you drive from if you drive from Bangor to Orono, um, I don't remember. It's Highway Eleven, is it? I can't remember. There are a couple different ways. Yeah. I did the scenic route, yes. and um, about a, a, I don't know about fifteen minutes drive out of uh, outside of Bangor on the way to Orono, there's a feed store called Flags. That actually, yeah, Flags. Um, he, that was one of the, the the places that actually inspired Randall Flagg. Gave him his last name. There you go. If you ever go to uh, to Bangor, and there is a, a, a tour, a Stephen King tour, and they take you to Flags, among other places. I, I've been to Bangor, but I'm, I'm, I'm too embarrassed to do the tour. That would yes. be tacky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't go for that very reason. <laughs> um, picking up on something you mentioned, Robin, what do you think has made this the year that has seen such a kind of resurgence in Stephen King's work? If it's all right, I'll repeat that just for the... Mm -hmm. So what is what is the reasons yeah, for the resurgence in King's work this year? If twenty seventeen is Stephen King's year, I actually have thought about that a lot. Um, it seems to me that it's been building for a while. His work, if you go right back to um, the way his work was received in the eighties, often he'd be slammed. Um, and he even writes about that when, you know, excerpts of his journal, you know, the response to people, this is just horror, this is not real literature. But over time, people are looking at it again, and they're saying, wait a minute here. You know, this is a storyteller who has had a tremendous influence um, on other writers, and there's a whole generation of filmmakers and, and writers, horror writers, and other kind of writers who've been really influenced by him. Um, horror, the blending of, of science fiction and fantasy, all these things are becoming um, much more acceptable. They're entering literary fiction. So I think that's part of it. And I think it is also time where um, people are reassessing his work. And he's also had such a tremendous output. It's quite incredible. So I'd be interested to hear what other people think about that. For me, I think, it, like I said, it's, it's that movement towards um, reassessing someone's work now I mean he's been writing for so many decades now I have a sort of follow-up question there's kind of Simon as well basically what about like what do we make of the the, the, the amount of people that will see these films this year that haven't read the book because I know loads of people especially even it's I know people I actually when I first saw the cinema I heard people coming out of the cinema saying like uh, or before the film started saying you know have you seen the original movie and I'm like no what's that or someone said oh, I started it it was terrible you know I didn't watch it or there are a lot of people, a lot, you know, it has, has made millions and a huge amount of those people have never read the book or even seen the miniseries. Yeah, it's been widely popular. The Dark Tower, equally, the millions of people who saw it who have never read the books and it was less successful. If we're talking the immediate kind of box office and, and sort of, you know, critical reaction. So, like, what do we make of the kind of the Stephen King cinematic universe that people know that's kind of detached from the books? If you understand what I mean. I think... 
I think it, it boils down, for me, I think it boils down to a question of branding. It is a name that people know. Um, Stephen King, you know, you look in the 1980s, the films, uh, certainly in that, that first kind of tranche, it was Stephen King's The Dead Zone, Stephen King's Firestarter, Stephen King's Children of the Corn. It was the establishment of a, of a brand name. The only one that wasn't that was John Carpenter's Christine, because Carpenter's had his, all of his films are John Carpenter's whatever. Um, and so I think people know him, they know the name, they have some kind of cultural sense of, of what that means. And I think what happens is there's always an element of curiosity now, certainly since 2013. And just to go back a little bit, the reason I think why 2017 is the year of Stephen King in terms of audiovisual TV and film goes back to Carrie in 2013, because you had Carrie. If you look at um, from 2000, and 2000 onwards, to the first decade of this uh, century, it is a century, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, it's been a long day. You've got gradually a law of diminishing returns. So you, you have on TV, you've got Rose Red and you've got Kingdom Hospital, which is a disaster, and you've got Desperation, which is a disaster. And cinematically speaking, you've got uh, 1408 and 2007, which is a monster hit. The Mist, which is a great film, but a significant box office flaw. And then there's a gap. In 2009, you have Dolan's Cadillac, which nobody sees or cares about. And then suddenly, in 2013, you get Carrie, and then you get Under the Dome, and there's a lot of buzz about Under the Dome. And then, on, then alongside this is this underpinning kind of will they, won't they with the Dark Tower. And then you get 11-22-63, and that's a big success. And then, you know, Hollywood, if it works, they'll keep doing it. So, um, and that's the boom and bust cycle of all King adaptations. So that kind of period, 2013 through to 2016, kind of creates the impetus for all of these projects to go into production, which are all coming out now. And it's May 2017, the year of Stephen King. So next year we've got Castle Rock. There's talk about uh, revival. There's talk about a new version of the Stand. There's talk it about it too. You've got Pet Cemetery. Now it's quite possible that a lot of these are going to be poorly received, and then it'll all kind of drift away again for a little while, and then it'll all come back up again because that's exactly what happened. But that period of boom and bust, which has run since 1980, so you're talking about 37 years, means that there is an expectation, a level of, a degree of inevitable excitement about a Stephen King project. And some of that inevitable excitement is followed by inevitable disappointment, and some of it is followed by, oh my god, this is actually good. And then, you know, people get more excited and go and see the next one and the next one. And I think, you know, charting it back, that's what happened. It was that remake of Carrie that started it all and just started people wanting to make the movies again, thinking they could be successful. And then it goes into the zeitgeist and people start to talk about it and think about it and so on and so forth. And meanwhile, while all of this is... So you've got two strands of stuff going on. So I'm mean, talking too much. No. Two strands of stuff going on. You've got uh, the remakes of the classics. So you've got It and The Mist. And then you've got the adaptations of stuff that hasn't been adapted before. So Gerald's Game, 1922. Um, and, you know, obviously in this period you've also got a Good Marriage and you've got Big Driver and you've got Mercy. So there's a lot going on. So people are harking back and kind of revisiting past glories. 
but also there's new stuff coming out and that new stuff isn't necessarily horror uh, in the same way that the old stuff is so it's also fostering a sense that what we all know as readers that Stephen King is something else uh, and that's encouraging people to open up to things like Gerald's Game and 1922 and so on and so forth so it's kind of like a perfect storm I think Speaking of sorry, speaking of nineteen twenty two and Gerald's game, do you think the freedom of something like Netflix and not having that big Hollywood need for profit has helped with this resurgence? Well, I think it's helped. No, <laughs> uh, not really, uh, because uh, I think it's actually the types of things that are being made. You know, I mean, in the nineteen nineties, the most popular. King projects were all on television and all on free-to-air television. They were all on ABC. Um, so, and, and King said, you know, he doesn't want to, at that point, he, he wanted to work on network television because he wanted the maximum number of people to be able to see it. It is, you know, he is democratized in the sense of, of he wants everybody to be able to see his stuff. And TV is free and Netflix is inexpensive. And... The irony is that the most expensive way to see a Stephen King thing now is to pay for a cinema ticket to go see it. Well, actually, one quick addition, because Simon, you were talking about adaptations earlier in your paper um, of, of Stephen King to the screen. And one of the things I think that's really unusual about Stephen King is um, you go back to Carrie, and that was this tremendous success, the original Carrie. And, but his whole relationship with film, I think, does um, really increases popularity and and not only does he bring in readers who might not otherwise read but he through film he's reached tremendous audiences and his whole um, idea of the dollar baby where a young filmmaker can pay a dollar and then have a right to to make a king film that's incredible his uh, his openness to adaptations of many different kinds that's really unusual because a lot of writers are very protective of how their work ends up on the screen and Stephen King takes that position of the books are the books and the film is the film. So it just opens this vast scope for an audience. So I, I thought that was really interesting. Stacey. Um, just following on the discussion about the resurgence of Stephen King, I, I was wondering what anyone kind of thought about the role of television and Netflix, Netflix serials on this resurgence, because one of the things that's come out of the conference today is is this kind of world building, these really quite complex worlds. And I wondered what, what you thought the kind of move towards long-run serial narratives on television makes King a suitable and appropriate subject. Uh, I can perhaps begin the process of filling this if you want. I think some of Steve, Stephen King's more popular narratives, certainly, I think, are, are of such scale that the very nature of serial television means that it's more suitable for the television format than the film. If you want to include all of the little set pieces that so many readers will will be disappointed if they're left out or you just want to see see what a, a visionary director will do with it. I mean it perhaps doesn't doesn't translate in terms of text like Carrie or Shawshank Redemption, which are novellas or very short novels, in a sense. but when you have something of the side of like Under the Dome, for example, that perhaps makes it more readily uh, translatable to a, a longer serial form. I agree. I mean, I'd go so, so I'd go so far to say is, um, I mean, it's clear that 
in the 1990s, you know, being able to adapt the longer novels into multiple part miniseries was a was was a very good idea when you were talking about uh, you know needful things. This incredibly long book being condensed into this two-hour movie, and I'm still trying to find a copy of the four-hour cut of Needful Things that was aired on I think it was TNT. Um, but oh, do you? No, thank you. Um, marvelous. Uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to be controversial here, but I think, you know, in going back to what I was talking about earlier and this idea of capturing Stephen King, I think the, the thing I've seen on TV that has done it most successfully recently is Under the Dome. Because even though Under the Dome chucks out uh, a lot of the premise of the story, and it's not a great premise. You know, I mean, in the novel, the reason why the town is under the dome is entirely incidental and thrown away incredibly quickly and really rather silly. Um, but what the, what the series does is it gives the time to do exactly what the book does, which is to put a bunch of people in a mm. proper pressure cooker situation and see what happens. And it takes that basic idea, it filters it through the demands of a long format serial narrative on television, which is that you've got to have an arc that is going to keep people watching, but you've also got to have individual episodes so people can kind of dip in and out. Um, and I think it's a kind of very interesting model for how to do that. And even though it went off the rails by the time it got to season three, um, I think the first season and the sec second half of the second season really is a very interesting model of how to do that. And it'd be interesting to see what they do with the Dark Tower TV series and whether they try to follow the narrative of the books or whether they try to build a world that is related to but moderately independent of the books and thus create something. Because, you know, this is normal now on, on TV. Look at the, you know, The Walking Dead their and Game of Thrones. They're parallel texts yes. now. And, there's, and Under the Dome is a parallel text to Stephen King, yet it, you know, nobody complains that Game of Thrones isn't the books. Well, some people do, but you know, whatever. Okay, he does. Um, I'll ignore that because I've never read the books, so I don't know what I'm talking about there. But that—that's that—that's my feeling. I think that I think that TV is a place where we can explore the character world building that he does in a way that may prove to be quite satisfying. I think in the long run. Um, question for the panel, really. Um, Stephen King's been criticised for appearing in his own literature. <laughs> um, however, I think really, for me, growing up, so I'm 30, and for me, Stephen King is Coca-Cola. He is a brand. I think of it. And I think actually what he's done is he's kind of reflected that, yeah, now he is a household name. So I don't think it's egotistical. I think he's actually reflecting popular culture. He is now part of popular culture. So I think a lot of writers have piggybacked on the brand Stephen King, and a lot of, I mean, we're our fans, but a lot of us will watch terrible, you know, nods to it because of the branding, because we were just curious, even if we get a thrill out criticising it or saying, oh, that was terrible, we're still going to go to that. And another thing I want to just quickly mention, I do think Netflix plays a part because that's a permanent almost catalogue where... Whereas before you'd have to rent a movie, or with TV, unless you recorded it, you, you're going to miss it. Whereas now people have this access. And a lot of my friends have watched films like Thinner that appears on Netflix, and oh, that's Stephen King. 
And the good news is, is that it's then making people go to the books, and then then they're kind of exposed to the whole a whole new world. So I think even if some of the branding people using his his um, name in a, in a kind of a, a bad way, it then might bring people back to which is just it's snowballing. And I think that's what twenty seventeen is 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 done for the last few years. It's just we've experienced the snowball effect where Stephen King, a lot of things have just led to this combination where it, he's just ubiquitous now. And that was going to something I was going to mention to you before, Robin, him appearing in the Dark Tower as Stephen King Post. Yes. That's something that I've, fans, Tower Junkies have, have criticised yeah. him stepping into the novel and making it more real than it needs to be. Is that something that he considered, do you know? Well, actually, it's funny because he has mentioned on occasion saying, you know, if I had to, if I do, re he has an idea he's going to rewrite the novels at some point, which is a lot of rewriting. <laughs> There's so many other stories to tell. He's talked about taking himself out um, of the books. If, if it does ever, uh, there's a TV series that carries on for the whole series. How do they handle, you know, Stephen King, 30-year-old Stephen King showing up and then the Stephen King of 1999. Mm. Um, I actually find it really interesting, especially in the scene, once again, spoilers, sorry, um, where Stephen King is hit by yeah. a car and the characters um, are there and, and Jake Chambers' life is sacrificed to save Stephen King's life. And you think about it kind of as a, as a metaphor for what happens when um, he's hit by a car, he's facing death, I can't die, I have too much still to write about. So symbolically, isn't an author saved by their characters? Isn't any creative person, you know, what, what is it we live for? What is it we live to do? So actually, I found it really powerful, but I know exactly what you yeah. mean about some people say, but I want to stay in the world of Roland. I don't want to join this world. Yeah. Was so, it also maybe a form of therapy for him I to think write so. that thing that nearly killed him? Yes, and I think his so life completely. Profoundly? I think I think completely because he relives it, but also fictionalizes it. Yeah. And so then you what you can't necessarily handle looking at as the actual event, once you fictionalize it, it becomes another story that you tell. And this happens to be the story you tell the world and you also tell yourself. Yeah. So I find that really interesting. I am, <laughs> I, I am looking forward to seeing how that's handled eventually, you know? Yeah. We'll play Stephen King. Stephen that's King. <laughs> CGI is really good. Yeah, nowadays. that's true. It that's might true. just be a virtual. He tweeted a picture the other day where the resemblance between him and his dad was so striking. Yes. I, I looked twice to make sure it wasn't yes. Stephen King. Looking at the Geordie Verrill, the, the clips again, yeah. you do really see that, you know, with Joe, Joe King, Joe mm. Hill King, that physical resemblance yeah. is very powerful. A question for everybody in the room. Now we've we've touched on this quite a lot over the day. Is the relationship between Stephen King's work and Stranger Things? Because it's it you can't deny it. It no, is it is there. absolutely there. So um, do we see that resemblance as a, an explicit relationship to King's fiction, or is it just a, a nostalgia for that time? You know the the it children and the way we've seen today that they're rewriting it to be in the 1980s as children is that an, is that a nostalgia as we were saying before or is there something a bit more is, 
is this an actual explicit look this is Stephen King's influence yeah it's, it's, it'd be really interesting to see what everyone has to say but I know that the creators of, of Stranger Things are huge King fans they wanted to do it and they said but you're unknown you can't do it so. I read that they wanted to make it yes once they read that that was already in production they knew they couldn't do it so they ended up doing Stranger Things well, I think they were turned down. Yes, they were turned down. They were turned down because nobody was interested in making it. It was because it was kind of strange things that they, that they made it. One of those very strange turns. Which is why Finn Wolfhard is in I think, like, maybe less even for the time. It's nostalgic for that kind of fiction. It's nostalgic for King's World rather than the era of the 80s. Because there's a lot of kind of... There's a lot of kind of like cultural hamfisting in Stranger Things. Like the fact, I always find it's daft the fact that they have like Evil Dead posters in the room because Evil Dead was not successful in the 80s. Mm. No, no child in the yes. 80s had an Evil Dead poster. You know, it became famous because of midnight screenings and kind of VHS. You know, but there's this kind of like a sort of a nostalgia for that kind of cultural hub rather than for the actual era of the 80s. So the innocence of childhood. Do you yeah, mean? Because sort of, you know, that's what he was writing when he wrote it, and yeah. those those it was the innocence of being children, wasn't? Is that right, Simon? Um, yes and no. I think yes, in the sense that the kids are innocent. But you know, I, I read it when I was more or less the same age as the characters, and was utterly shocked by the language that they used. Um, and I think what I like about that is that it's nostalgic for a childhood which is innocent and yet slightly mischievous and naughty and not proper. Do you know what I mean? I mean, these are, real, these, these, these are kids, they are identifiable, we can be nostalgic about them, but, but they also, you know, they run, run out on their parents, they swear a lot, they... Well, you know, let's not talk about that uh, scene. That scene, no, let's yeah. ignore that. But yeah, so it, it's it, it's innocence, but not in a kind of puritanical kind of way. It's innocence yeah. in a real world. I, and I think speaking as someone who's you know left childhood behind some time ago, um, you know, if I hear fifteen-year-olds sort of on a bus kind of swearing their heads off, it bothers me. When I hear King's children swearing their heads off, it doesn't bother me. And it, it's like a kind I, I don't know. I, so yeah, it's, it's a nostalgia for childhood innocence, but it's innocence not in that kind of puritanical sense. It's also really interesting, I've been thinking a lot, because the, the, um, the 50s and the 80s have come up a lot in discussion today. And I've been thinking a lot about what the 50s represent in the United States. There's this idea of the age of innocence. And you think, well, what innocence? <laughs> you know, look at what had to happen in the 60s to break down the 50s. Um, you know, you had to have civil rights. You had to have um, the women's movement. You, there was so much that happened in the 60s. But there was a sense of people look back yeah. on the 50s and, uh, as a time of security. And, and there is a weird way in which there can be a cultural longing for a time of repression there were great things in the 50s as well. You have the beats. You have, you know, the 60s wouldn't have happened without the, the beat writers and the, and the whole beat generation of the 50s. Um, but it is so complicated. And you think then about the 80s and what, you know, the, the Reagan generation and you have Thatcher. And, you know, the, what is it 
that we're longing for when we look back at these things. It is actually quite disturbing. What's interesting there is that also there's a longing for it, but there's also an undermining of it. I mean, yes, in, I in, agree. in Christine, um, you know, the car is this. It's set in 1978, uh, published in 1983, and it's looking back to a car from 1958, right? Um, and itself, the book and the film, then fostered what is this incredible fandom for this car. Mm. And there are international fa Christine car club, you know, fan clubs. Um, are you a member? Huh? Are you a member? Oh, God, yes. Are you really? <laughs> yeah, both of them. And, um, uh, you know, there are people who spend a fortune kind of re you know, yeah. recreating the car. And there's a hierarchy of this. You know, there, at the top of the hierarchy, there are the four remaining cars that are in the movie. Then there are the people uh, who, were, who have created Christine clones. And then there are people who, actually, who own actual 1958 Plymouth Furies, which look nothing like Christine. And they're at the, the fag end of the, uh, of the hierarchy here. But what was interesting, I was researching this, in the early 1980s in America, there was a, a nostalgia movement for 1950s cars, which King just suddenly tapped into, and which has then created a nostalgia, not necessarily, you know, and I've been talking to people about this and interviewing these, these owners, they're nostalgic not for the 1950s, but they're nostalgic for the 1980s, which is when they read the book and fell in love with the car from the 1950s. Or the nineteen, you know, or not even the nineteen eighties. You know that moment when they were sort of twelve years old and they read Christine for the first time and they fell in love with this car. So they're spending all this money on buying an old um, fifty-seven Plymouth uh, Belvedere or Plymouth Savoy, which were the kind of the other models, and then you know having paying somebody a vast amount of money to recreate uh, Christine. But they're not. It's not. 1958 that they're interested in it's either the early 1980s or that year that they remember that transition from childhood to adulthood when they they went from reading kids books to reading king books um and that to me is just i don't even know what the question was now but <laughs> also if you know if in the 80s the 50s becomes the long ago Mm. And in the present now, which shows you how time passes, mm. the, 80s the 80s is the long ago. You know, because some people remember it was their, it was their youth, and then other people, rem you know, they were babies, but they have vague memories. And for other people, it's their parents' generation. And it's like, wow, like I remember being a little kid and, you know, um, going in to lay in bed with my mother and ask for stories, you know, of when she was a kid, which seemed to me to be almost like the land of fairy tale. Mm. And... Um, my husband always says how he was not popular with his grandmother at one point because he said, were there dinosaurs alive when you were a little grandma? <laughs> she was not, please. But you know, you think yeah. about that and it is, mm -hmm. it becomes the land of story. It becomes the land of fairy tale, which is close enough to reality yeah. to draw you, but it's also not now. Well, I, every, every year I teach a class on British cinema and Margaret Thatcher. And the, I've been doing this for 10 years and the first few years I did it, I would say, you know, begin the class saying, what are your memories of Margaret Thatcher? What is your understanding of Margaret Thatcher? Now I have to say to my students the week before, go home and ask your parents yes. about what their memories of Margaret Thatcher are. Because, you know, they were born in the Tony Blair era. Mm. And so the 80s is long ago. It is the land of long ago. Can I just pick up on that? You had a different response this year now that we have, a, you know, our second female prime minister and we have, like, a Thatcher light. No, that's interesting. No, no, they, 
No, not at all. It's really interesting. It was quite interesting. I think the 80s as well, with the hipster movement, this having record, buying record player, and I think really we touched upon it today about the anxiety of automation technology, mm -hmm. this longing to call, it was simpler then. Even though the Cold War was happening, even though there was still tension, the fact that we weren't stuck on our phones, you know, that it just seemed more, and that's what nostalgia is, isn't it? With looking yeah. back with rose-tinted glasses. And it's the music as well. I mean, I, I remember my sisters making me watch The Heathers with Winona Ryder. <laughs> love it, and that's kind of why I love Stranger Things as well, because just, she, I love it. Um, and it kind of makes, so even the, the cast, Winona Ryder is a, is a throwback to Very that good era. Point. And I think for millennials, I guess, annoyingly, born in 87, I'm a millennial. But it's kind of like, for me, it's this generation where that's their past. And yeah. so that anxiety about the future, well, what is the future? There's lots of uncertainty, Brexit, Trump, and it's almost harkening back to, wasn't it a bit the good old days, even though there wasn't? And you see that in Stranger Things, where there is this Cold War, nuclear warfare, all, but we don't, we kind of ignore that. We just kind of look at longing for something that seems more simple. Yes, actually, it's just so interesting talking about the 80s, and I find mm -hmm. myself also, you know, watching Stranger Things, I am also a fan. And um, you look and say, oh yeah, I remember that. And then when you think back to the 80s with the Thatcher era, with the Reagan era, it was an incredibly depressing mm. decade. I mean, you're like, what happened to the 70s? I always think anybody, um, the young ones, anybody a fan of the young ones, and you think of, of Neil, the very sad hippie, and you think, there was a reason, you know, <laughs> because you felt like, you know, there was that whole thing of hippiedom being betrayed, whether or not you agreed with, with hippiedom. Um, and the punk, but now looking back, you realize that the punk movement and all those things in the 80s, they were rebelling. They were standing up still. And then people can feel now like, where do we go? What voice do we have? Maybe it's less about nostalgia than it's about working something out. Like yeah, the point. Of, of revisiting pop culture from previous from previous times, so in the 80s there's an obsession with 50s pop culture and the remakes of The Blob, of The Fly, of you know, 50s yeah. science fiction films, but they're quite often taking what are very conservative subsets in those 50 film, 50s films and twisting them to be a little bit more progressive and to kind of look back at those atavistic politics and say how can we, we, how can we change that? I think there's an element of that in something like Stranger Things, which is looking back on all of those like hideous political happenings of the 80s and saying actually we're going back down that road, and maybe we ought to turn around. Um, so I don't think it's, it, it. So there is definitely a nostalgia. I mean, I'm wearing a Gremlins T-shirt. There's definitely a nostalgia. <laughs> but I think at the same time, um, there is an element of looking back at those films and uh, and the pop culture of the '80s, and actually kind of saying, well, what was that saying, and, and how would that jive with where we are now, and how can we kind of work those things out? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's a depressing enough moment to finish. Do you? Oh. <laughs> So I'd like to thank my three guests on my panel, if everybody could give them a round of applause. <laughs> and thanks to the audience. Thanks to the audience. And thank you to Simon and Kingston for hosting our See you all again this time next year. <laughs>